You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, July 21st, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, the biggest early warning sign of dementia, according to neurologists, from HuffPost. And Mind Melt, the Science of Brain Wave Synchronization, from Nice News. Plus, infectious diseases could spike as the planet warms, from the Associated Press. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. This is the biggest early warning sign of dementia that most people completely miss. Neurologists reveal the biggest early symptom of the disease and what you can do about it by Lee Weingus from HuffPost. When we think about dementia, we often think of a person experiencing memory loss and confusion. While it's true that these are certainly symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia, missing some of the more subtle signs that aren't as well known can lead to a later diagnosis and delay in care. With an estimated 6.7 million Americans over the age of 65 in the U.S. living with Alzheimer's, dementia is far from rare. So what dementia-related signs should someone look out for in themselves and others? And when should they see their doctor for a dementia screening? Here's everything you need to know. The biggest early sign is spatial issues along with trouble with speech and directions. While we all forget a word now and then, if this becomes a pattern, it could signal a problem. Difficulty with language, including word-finding difficulty, incorrect sentence construction, or difficulty with self-expression, can present well before the loss of memory, said Dr. Arif Dalvi, a neurologist and physician chief of the Movement Disorders Program at Delray Medical Center. It's easy to brush this off, but it's important to monitor if there's any frequency of this behavior. Additionally, you may notice a change in your sense of direction. Visual or spatial skills can also be affected early, Dalvi continued. A common way this presents is difficulty navigating a previously familiar route or needing GPS directions to a route that was previously known, he said. Pay attention to other red flags as well. Other less commonly recognized symptoms include difficulty completing familiar tasks, noise sensitivity, and a change in taste and smell, according to Dr. Stanley Appel, neurologist and director of the Ann Kimball and John W. Johnson Center for Cellular Therapeutics at Houston Methodist. An abrupt change in personality or mood without underlying explanation should also raise a red flag, Dalvi added. And more rarely, you might see some symptoms that resemble other neurological issues. Some types of dementia, such as Lewy body dementia, can cause hallucinations or delusions, Appel explained. It's crucial to note that hallucinations can also result from other causes, and any unusual symptoms should be discussed with a healthcare provider, he said. Bring up any concerning symptoms to your doctor, ASAP. Sadly, there is no cure for dementia, but both experts emphasized that an early diagnosis can improve quality of life and stop the disease from progressing as quickly. Traditional treatment options, such as medication to manage symptoms, 
recommendations for lifestyle changes, and referrals to support services like occupational and speech therapy are vital in maintaining cognitive function and overall well-being, Appel said. Plus, in recent years, there's been a significant breakthrough in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. The FDA has approved two new drugs, Aduhelm and Lakembi, that target the buildup of amyloid beta plaques in the brain, which is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, Appel said. Although the approval of Aduhelm has been controversial, some studies have shown that it can slow cognitive decline in certain patients. On the other hand, clinical trials have shown that Lakembi can slow cognitive decline in certain patients with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, he said. In addition to lessening the buildup of amyloid plaques, Appel added that some doctors are working on other innovative approaches to treatment. One is to suppress neuroinflammation with regulatory T-cells. And other investigations are using advances in gene therapy to develop novel approaches for Alzheimer's disease. These breakthroughs in medical science offer hope for individuals with dementia and their families, he said. There is no official age to get a dementia screening, but it's always a good idea to reach out to your doctor if you're experiencing any symptoms. Dalvi emphasized that since the incidence of dementia rises with age, particularly after 65, that's a good time to have a simple dementia screening, such as a mini cognitive assessment. Physicians can look for reversible causes of memory loss, like a vitamin B12 deficiency or hypothyroidism. Screening for hearing loss at this age is also important, as it is estimated that one out of nine dementias can be explained on the basis of age-related hearing loss, he said. While there may not be a complete cure for dementia and Alzheimer's, there is a lot doctors can do once they reach a diagnosis. There should be no stigma associated with screening for dementia, Appel said. An early and accurate diagnosis allows a plan to be put in place for either treating or slowing the cause of dementia, he said. Up next, mind meld, the science of brainwave synchronization. Have you ever had the same idea as a friend about what to eat for dinner or concluded a successful brainstorming session at work and remarked that you must be on the same wavelength or that great minds think alike? Those aren't just common phrases, they're backed by actual science. Per a growing field of research commonly called collective neuroscience, human brain waves synchronize when we interact with each other. Our neurons fire at the same time and in corresponding patterns, something scientists discovered while studying brains in pairs of two rather than on their own. And the phenomenon is stronger with the people we're closest to, like longtime friends and romantic partners, according to a report from Lydia Denworth in Scientific American. When we're talking to each other, we kind of create a single uber-brain that isn't reducible to the sum of its parts, Thalia Wheatley, a professor of psychological and brain sciences who is conducting a forthcoming study on the topic, told Denworth. Like oxygen and hydrogen combined to make water, it creates something special that isn't reducible to oxygen and hydrogen independently, she said. Up next, Climate Connections, A Warming Planet, Pathogens, and Diseases, by Zoya Tierstein from the Associated Press. People around the world are living longer, healthier lives than they were just half a century ago. 
Climate change threatens to undo that progress. Across the planet, animals and the diseases they carry are shifting to accommodate a globe on the fritz, and they're not alone. Ticks, mosquitoes, bacteria, algae, even fungi are on the move, shifting or expanding their historical ranges to adapt for climatic conditions that are changing at an extraordinary pace. These changes are not happening in a vacuum. Deforestation, mining, agriculture, and urban sprawl are taking bites out of the globe's remaining wild areas, contributing to biodiversity loss that's occurring at a rate unprecedented in human history. Populations of species that humans rely on for sustenance are dwindling and getting pushed into ever smaller slices of habitat, creating new hotspots for diseases to jump from animals to humans. Meanwhile, the number of people experiencing extreme repercussions of a warming planet continues to grow. Climate change displaces some 20 million people every year. People who need housing, medical care, food, and other essentials that put strain on already fragile systems that are growing ever more stressed. All of these factors create conditions ripe for human illness. Diseases old and new are becoming more prevalent, and even cropping up in places they've never been found before. Researchers have begun piecing together a patchwork of evidence that illuminates the formidable threat climate-driven diseases currently pose to human health, and the scope of the dangers to come. Rising temperatures. This is not just something off in the future. Neil Vora, a physician with the nonprofit Conservation International, said. Climate change is here. People are suffering and dying right now, he said. Research shows that climate change influences the spread of disease in a few major ways. To escape rising temperatures in their native ranges, animals are beginning to move to higher, cooler elevations, bringing diseases with them. That poses a threat to people living in those areas, and it also leads to dangerous intermingling between animal newcomers and existing species. Animal migration, bird flu, for example, has been spreading with greater ease among wild animals as rising seas and other factors push nesting bird species inland, where they're more likely to run into other species. Diseases that jump between species tend to have an easier time eventually making the leap to humans. Warmer winters and milder autumns and springs allow carriers of pathogens. Ticks, mosquitoes, and fleas, for example, to remain active for longer spots of the year. Expanded active periods mean busier mating seasons and fewer casualties over the cold winter months. The northeastern United States has seen a massive proliferation of Lyme disease-carrying black-legged ticks over the past decade, with warmer winters playing a decisive role in that trend. Extreme weather. Erratic weather patterns, such as periods of extreme drought and flooding, create conditions for diseases to spread. Cases of cholera, a waterborne bacterial disease, skyrocket during the monsoon season in South Asian countries when flooding contaminates drinking water, especially in places that lack quality sanitation infrastructure. Valley fever, a fungal-borne infection caused by spores that grow in the soil in the western U.S., proliferates during periods of rain. 
The severe drought that tends to follow rain in that part of the world shrivels the fungal spores, which allow them to more easily disperse into the air at the slightest disturbance, a hiker's boot, say, or a garden rake, and find their way into the human respiratory system. These climate-driven impacts are taking a serious toll on human health. Cases of disease linked to mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas tripled in the U.S. between 2004 and 2016, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The threat extends beyond commonly recognized vector-borne diseases. Research shows that more than half of all the pathogens known to cause disease in humans can be made worse by climate change. The problem compounds as time goes on. The World Health Organization estimates that between 2030 and 2050, just a handful of climate-related threats, such as malaria and water insecurity, will claim a quarter of a million additional lives each year. I think we've drastically underestimated not only how much climate change is already changing disease risks, but just how many kinds of risks are changing, Colin Carlson, a global change biologist at Georgetown University, said. He noted that while connecting the dots between tick-borne illnesses and climate change, for example, is a relatively straightforward scientific endeavor, the scientific community and the general public need to be aware that the impacts of global warming on disease can also manifest in less obvious ways. The COVID-19 pandemic, he said, is an example of how quickly disease can move through global populations and how deeply complicated the public health response to such threats can get. I think there's a lot more to worry about in terms of epidemic and pandemic threats, he said. The world has the tools it needs, wildlife surveillance networks, vaccines, early warning systems, to mitigate the impacts of climate-driven disease. Some of these tools have already been tried on a local scale to great effect. What remains to be seen is how quickly governments, NGOs, medical providers, doctors, and the public can work across borders to develop and deploy a global plan of action. Up next, Lessons from the Longest Study on Happiness by Maurizio Weingarten, M.D., from Medscape. And this is a commentary. We are all searching for happiness, but how do we achieve it? What are its greatest determinants? The Harvard study of adult development may be the most comprehensive study ever conducted, as it followed its participants for their entire adult lives. The study was started in Boston in 1938 and has already covered three generations, grandparents, parents, and children, who are now considered baby boomers. It analyzed more than 2,000 people throughout 85 years of longitudinal study. In January, Robert Waldinger, MD, the current director of this incredible study, published the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, co-authored with the study's associate director, Mark Schultz, Ph.D. By following this large population for more than eight decades, the study uncovered the factors most correlated with well-being and happiness. Here's a summary of some of the author's main concepts. Most important factors. The study's happiest participants had two major factors in common throughout its 85 years, taking care of their health and building loving relationships with others. 
It seems obvious that being in good health is essential to live well. However, to some surprise, researchers determined that good relationships were the most significant predictor of health and happiness during aging. Other authors have confirmed this finding, and research has sought to analyze the physiological mechanisms associated with this benefit. Professional success insufficient. Professional success on its own does not guarantee happiness, even though it may be gratifying. The study revealed that those who were happiest were not isolated. In fact, the happiest people valued and fostered relationships. Levels of education and cultural awareness, which tend to be higher among those with higher salaries, were also important factors for adopting healthy habits, promoted more often as of the 1960s, and for better access to healthcare. Social skills. Loneliness is increasingly common and creates challenges when dealing with stressful situations. It is essential to have someone with whom we can vent. Therefore, Waldinger recommends assessing how to foster, strengthen, and broaden relationships. He calls this maintaining social connections, and just as with physical fitness, it also requires constant practice. Friendships and relationships need regular commitment to keep them from fizzing out. A simple telephone call can help. Participating in activities that bring joy and encourage camaraderie, such as sports, hobbies, and volunteer work, may broaden the relationship network. Happiness not constant. Social media almost always shows the positive side of people's lives and suggests that everyone lives worry-free. However, the truth is that no one's life is free of difficulties and challenges. Social skills contribute to resilience. It is never too late for a turnaround and for people to change their lives through new relationships and experiences. Those who think they know everything about life are very mistaken. The study showed that good things happened to those who had given up on changing their situation, and good news appeared when they least expected it. This study highlights the importance of having social skills and always cultivating our relationships to help us become healthier, overcome challenging moments, and achieve the happiness that we all deserve. We finally have robust, evidence-based data to use when speaking on happiness. And this article was translated from the Medscape Portuguese edition. Up next, is it bad to wash your hair every day? The ideal lathering schedule varies from person to person, experts say. Here's how to tell what may work for you. By Jancy Dunn from the New York Times. And this is in question and answer format. Question. I've heard that washing your hair every day can strip it of its natural oils, making it dry and brittle, and causing scalp irritation. Is that true? And what if I exercise regularly? Answer. Whether you should lather up daily depends on a number of factors, said Dr. Murad Alam, vice chair of the Department of Dermatology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Among them, he said, are your hair's texture, how oily it gets, how processed it is, your lifestyle habits, and your age. Shampoo cleanses your scalp and hair by removing environmental contaminants like dirt and pollen as well as dandruff, sweat, and hair care products. It also dissolves sebum, an oily, waxy substance produced by the sebaceous glands near your hair follicles. 
Sebum keeps your scalp from becoming too dry, said Dr. Rosemarie Ingleton, an assistant clinical professor of dermatology at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, and protects the skin from infection. But if sebum builds up, she said, it can cause problems. When to wash daily. Using shampoo every day, Dr. Alam said, can be the right choice for people with oilier scalps where sebum can accumulate, making the hair limp, greasy, and possibly smelly. Those with fine hair, Dr. Alam said, may also find that it becomes greasy more quickly because there is less hair to absorb the oil. For them, a daily lather may be warranted. Daily washing may also be needed, Dr. Alam added, if you frequently use products such as gels or hairsprays, which can build up on your scalp and cause irritation, or even hinder hair growth by clogging the hair follicles. When to avoid daily shampooing. Not all hair textures can tolerate a daily wash, Dr. Ingleton said, including curly or coily hair, which may dry out, become brittle or break if washed daily or even every couple of days. If you're black, the American Academy of Dermatology recommends washing your hair every week or every other week. Dr. Shireen Idris, a dermatologist and founder of Idris Dermatology in New York City, has stricter recommendations for washing regardless of how fine or oily hair is. When it comes to your scalp health, I do not regularly recommend washing your hair every day, Dr. Idris said, adding that it could lead to irritation, inflammation, and other scalp problems. Chemical treatments, such as hair dyes and relaxers, can make the hair shaft more prone to damage, Dr. Alam said. He recommended washing chemically treated hair two to three times a week. Certain medications, such as statins, antihistamines, and diuretics, for example, may also increase skin and scalp dryness, Dr. Alam said. If you take them, he added, wash your hair with a gentle shampoo that contains moisturizers to prevent dryness and irritation. It can also be helpful to use shampoo with warm instead of hot water, since lathering with hot water can remove too much oil from the scalp, Dr. Allum said. While it may seem that getting the scalp squeaky clean and without any oils is optimal, keep in mind that the scalp is a living part of your body and not a dinner plate in your dishwasher, Dr. Allum said. Age can also dictate your shampooing schedule, Dr. Allum said. Sebum production is typically slow during early childhood, goes into overdrive during puberty, levels out during adulthood, and slows down gradually after age 70. So if you are older, your scalp might be drier, and it may not require a daily scrub. What to do if you exercise regularly? If you habitually work out and you're an excessive sweater, Dr. Allum said the salt from sweat can clog your pores and hair follicles. That may require a daily wash or rinse to clean out the salt and secretions, he said. If you do not at least rinse your hair afterward, you can get inflammation of your hair follicles, which is called folliculitis, and pimples on your scalp, he said. This becomes even more important if you have oily hair, Dr. Idris said. You may need to wash it every day, she added, but you don't always need to use shampoo. Alternating a shampoo wash with a water rinse every other day can help minimize stripping your scalp of oil, Dr. Idris said. And drenching your hair with plain water, she added, can be enough to get you through to the next day. 
If you just can't skip the shampoo, Dr. Idris said, opt for a mild formula that has sulfate-free or gentle claims on the label and avoid hot water and excessive scrubbing, both of which can irritate the scalp. As for drying, Dr. Allum recommended air drying whenever possible, which is the least traumatic for your hair, he said. If you wash your hair every day and your scalp is not irritated and your hair isn't dry or brittle, and you are not losing any hair, Dr. Allum said, then keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.